Romans chapter 11. Romans 11, beginning in verse 33. Take your Bibles and find your way there. We have finally made it to the end of Romans 11. And I am so encouraged by where the Lord has brought us. This is a passage that, if I can just be honest with you, I have waited to preach this passage my whole life. And I just feel like this is one of those texts that you just look at and think, someday, someday I want to study that at the depth that it deserves. And even now, I feel like I'm just taking a thimble to the ocean and trying to walk away with as much as I can get. Romans chapter 11 is the end paragraph of not only this chapter, but it's the end paragraph of chapters 9, 10, and 11, and the arguments that Paul has put forth in these three chapters. Let me just read it to set it in our minds. Romans 11, you can follow along as I read verses 33 to 36. Paul says, Oh, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Is there a place that you'd like to go? Is there a place on your, your bucket list, as we call it? Would you like to see the Roman Colosseum maybe before you go to heaven or the Great Wall of China, Westminster Abbey, maybe the Grand Canyon? Is there a place that you've just longed to go and see and experience for yourself? Well, I feel like this passage is that for me. It's a place I've always wanted to go and study, and because of the demands of week-by-week week exposition, I haven't had an opportunity to give it the attention that I'd always wanted. But we finally come to one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. Now, before we begin into studying this, I want to take us back to a couple of illustrations we've used all the way through our study of Romans, and I can assure you, we will come back and talk about these again, okay? The first is that of the automatic watch. Remember, the, the Swiss-made automatic watch with all the movements. It's a self-winding watch. It has gears and springs and mainsprings and screws, and if you see one of these watches that's completely disassembled, it would be utterly impossible for you or me to put it back together. Hundreds of little moving parts in these tiny watches. And no matter how long you tried, no matter how many little microscopes you had, and it takes a microscope to actually put these things back together, you probably couldn't figure it out. And yet, if you were to look at the backside of a skeletized automatic watch, one that has a clear uh, back that you could see through or maybe even go on the internet and see someone who's made one of these watches, you'd be amazed. You would be so amazed. 
But inside all of those workings, if you flip it over, it just tells you what time it is. It's a simple timepiece. Also, remember the raging river? It's a river we come up to. We're trying to move from east to west, and we're, we come up against this river, and it's a massive river, but it's a fast-moving river, white water, too fast to brave, too many boulders to try to navigate, too far to jump across, too deep to dig under, too far in each direction to walk around and find different access. And instead of continuing to potentially hurt ourselves or harm ourselves to get across the river, I think it's best just to step back and admire the beauty of the river. You don't have to be able to understand all the workings of an automatic watch to appreciate what it does. And you don't have to be Superman or have a, a jet plane to get across a river to understand how beautiful and wonderful it is. In both of these examples, the best thing to do is step back and admire their beauty, consider their amazement, and simply be amazed. That's why this morning we're going to park our bus on our journey through Romans. This is, this is a turnout. Ever been through a, a, a maybe the Blue Ridge Parkway or through the Rockies and through some mountains and they, you want to stop and see the beauty, but if you did, someone would run into you. So they, they construct these turnouts where you can turn out, stop, get out and take pictures and enjoy the view. This is one of the turnouts. This is a theological turnout that Paul has constructed for us to stop and look at what he said and what God's done. Now, if you were to read Romans 9, 10, and 11, the four verses before us would, would make sense really without a lot of explanation. You can read it and understand. But so many times, this passage has been isolated, taken out of context. And it speaks much truth standing on its own, but it speaks so much more in context. These verses are very much expected. Paul can no longer contain himself. For three chapters, he has been drenching us with the greatness of God, caught in a, a spring shower. Everything comes from him. Everything exists by his power. Everything will ultimately answer to him and bow on humble knees before a great God with faces to the ground and say, God is great. Now, I have to admit, I was a little discouraged when I was studying this week and looking at this passage because the great Greek uh, scholar Robert Mounts says this about this passage, these four verses. He says, quote, its power is felt more in hearing it read and reflecting upon its truth than comments that must be made regarding specific meaning at various points, end quote. In other words, the best thing I could probably do is read it and say amen. But since I'm not going to do that, let's look together at some of its depths. It is just so profound to simply read. Here's the issue. Who but God could have, who but God would have ever constructed a plan in which disobedience and sin ends up glorifying him and being good for us because we're forgiven for it. If you and I were, were in a boardroom, we were to go upstairs in one of the classrooms, get a whiteboard, and we were to invent a religion, let's invent a religion, it would look nothing like what Paul just described in these last three chapters. Actually, in his last 11 chapters, nothing. So before we jump into this, I want to ask you a kind of a penetrating personal question, if that's okay. Have you ever been truly 
overwhelmed. You know, I'm talking about an experience and feelings. Have you ever been truly overwhelmed by God's greatness? Even if for a moment. Have you ever come to a place in your thinking and in your worship where you, you sensed the presence of someone so much greater than you? Have you ever felt in isolation or even all at the same time in the presence of the Almighty amazement, fear, curiosity, thankfulness, being awed, being humbled, being crushed, and being uplifted? Have you ever been in a moment with God where you felt Oh, so indescribably small. That's the theological and psychological condition of Paul at the end of Romans 11. He erupts. Just as someone does a wonderful rendition and Megan and Aaron did this beautiful piece on the cello and piano, the natural reflex was to, to clap, right? You, you can't help yourself. I, I want to express that that was meaningful to me. That's what these verses are. We know Isaiah 6 very well, but have you, have you really concentrated on Isaiah's response to seeing the greatness of God? In Isaiah 6, in the year of King Isaiah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling in the temple. Now, the train of his robe would have been on the ground, which tells us where Isaiah was, on the ground. He noticed the train filling the temple. He did look up, however. Verse 2 says, Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. One called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. And Isaiah says, Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. That's the response of worship, of being overwhelmed, of being attracted to and fearful of the same one who's the Almighty. Okay, let me give you a little preview. Um, uh, yesterday afternoon, I was pretty sure that this was going to be one sermon. And this is what it looked like. Um, it's three theological triads for staggering doxology. There are three different sets of threes. There's three declarations, three questions, and three attributions. And in my incredible arrogance and pride, I thought we were going to do that in one sermon. And uh, I lost last night and decided we're going to do it in a few sermons, if that's okay. I want us to get to chapter 12 eventually, but this is too good not to stop and take a deep, deep drink. So we're just going to look at that first triad right there. I just want, to see, want you to see where we're going. Three declarations about God's unsearchable greatness. We're going to look at three of these threes. This is the first of the three this morning. Three declarations about God's unsearchable greatness. And those, if you look at the title, are three theological triads for staggering doxology. 
Staggering, it just means you're, you're overwhelmed. You, you can't catch your balance. You, you're blown off course because of something being so great. So let's look at just this first point this morning. Three theological declarations about God's unsearchable greatness, and they're all in verse 33. Okay? Verse 33. Let's look at that. The first one is this. He has limitless knowledge. God has limitless knowledge. Verse 33, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Now, I want to teach you a Greek word this morning that's really, really easy. It's actually one letter in the Greek. It's the word omicron with a passive breathing mark. And it means, here's how you say it, ready? Oh, it's just, oh, that's it. Think you can learn that one? Oh, we translate that O-H in, um, in, in, in English, but it has a powerful, staggering meaning. Pull this right out of my Greek lexicon, my Greek dictionary. Interjection, used in address or in exclamation, expressing unspeakable admiration. In other words, it's not a word. O is just a, it's an emotive it's, it's a feeling. Oh. You understand what oh is? It's what you say when you don't know what to say. I just saw it. Saw it this morning. Someone, with a, a, one of our ladies with a newborn, gave it to another lady who wanted to hold this baby. And you know what she did? As soon as she received that baby, she just instantly said, oh. It had a world of meaning. You're driving in a car and someone pulls out in front of you. Oh, it just, it communicates the incommunicatable. It's the way that the soul breathes. And I would say this, there is a library of meaning in that simple one letter word, oh. We could spend weeks on that. We won't. Paul just, at the end of Romans 11, just says, oh, Oh, he, don't, he doesn't say this any other time in Romans. He's emotive. He just says, oh, stop the presses. Oh, what, Paul? Reflecting, he says, oh, the depth of the riches. Let's stop right there. The depth. That's how deep these riches are, how wealthy his, God's wealth is, how rich God's riches are. Now, the word and the idea of riches have a universal connotation of three things. Relief, security, and joy. Relief, security, and joy. Imagine, as I know you have, don't, don't pretend that you haven't, that one day you get that knock on the door and you look out and there's this van with a guy with balloons and a big giant check to say you've won you know, some kind of clearinghouse publisher's sweepstakes and you're going to get a million dollars every hour the rest of your life or something like that. You just... In other words, money's never going to be a problem. And you thought, what would that be like? What would that be like? I'll tell you what it would be like. Three things. It would first of all be relief. You'd pay off all your debts. You would owe no man. It would be relieving to have your debts freed. Riches, secondly, means security. The cessation about worry and needs. Can you imagine never having to worry about anything financial again the rest of your life? Ever? Everything you needed, you got. 
get this, everything you wanted, you got. And a third that leads to is, is joy. To obtain what you want, anything you would want to make you happy. Relief, security, and joy. That's what a depth and wealth of riches communicate. But that's on the physical side, the temporal side. It's the same spiritually. He's talking about spiritual riches, spiritual realities. The depth of the riches, we'll come up with the scripture of that in a moment, of God. Relief. Not to owe God anything anymore. (laughs) Security. To have all we need. And joy. To have everything we want spiritually. Oh, the depth. Oh, how can I even respond? The depth of the riches. Both. Now he uses this word both. And he uses two tandem concepts that, that, each, that, that we, we tend to put kind of together. The wisdom and knowledge of God. Wisdom and knowledge. Two separate realities. Let's look at them separately. God is wise. He's wise because of his riches. The riches of who he is feeds his wisdom and feeds his knowledge. Romans 2, 4, we've already seen it several months ago or years ago actually. Do you not think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience? That's wisdom. Not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Have you stopped to consider how wealthy God is spiritually and how bankrupt we are spiritually and how he gives us the depth of his riches? Ephesians 3.8, to me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, this is Paul's purpose, to preach to the Gentiles, the unfathomable riches of Christ. We'll find this word unfathomable unfathomable in a second in our text. It was used of a, it's called a sounding rope. Um, you can see this in Acts um, uh, chapter uh, 27 when they're trying to use soundings to see how deep the water is. They would have different ropes. They would drop it down. How deep is the water? And when they threw the, the, the longest rope over and it, it had a weight at the bottom, a rock at the bottom, and it wouldn't hit the bottom, that's unfathomable. You can't find the bottom. How deep is God in the riches of his what? Wisdom. Now, to truly understand wisdom, that's not deciding which car to buy or which house to live in or where your kid goes to school, or what you eat for lunch. That, that, those are applications of wisdom, but this is something far richer. Paul says to the Colossians that he wants their hearts to be encouraged in chapter 2, verse 2, being knit together in love, attaining to the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery. Romans 11 talks about God's mystery. Then he says this, that is Christ himself in whom... Are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So he's saying the ultimate expression of wisdom and knowledge is the person of Jesus Christ, the one who grew up in Nazareth, the one who died on a cross, the one who rose from the grave, the one who lives ever to make intercession for the saints. In him is personified all wisdom and knowledge. So if you want to have a pursuit of wisdom and knowledge, start with your Christology. Start with understanding the person of Christ. Now, listen, we've studied Romans 9, 10, and 11 for months, months and months. And we know a lot more about the mysteries of God than when we started, but we don't know everything. 
God's wisdom is beyond us. Let me ask you some questions. You've studied through Romans 9 and 10 and 11, going back into chapter 8, especially on God's providence and his sovereignty and salvation. Does anyone here say, I fully understand all the dimensions and aspects of divine election? No hands are raised. Does anyone completely understand that God hardens certain hearts of certain people? He did Pharaoh. He hardens the hearts of some. Do we we fully understand that? Does anyone have a satisfying answer as to why God would choose some and not all for salvation? Do we have a handle on God's closing the eyes and ears of some of the Jews to the very gospel he came to give them? Does anyone have a chart, a big diagram that completely outlines, completely maps God's timetable with Jews and Gentiles? Anybody got that all figured out? Can anyone fully explain God's dealings with Israel? That's God's wisdom. And the depth of those riches, you will never get to the bottom. And yet, is there anything more comforting than this? God has complete, entire, eternal wisdom to do with the universe what he thinks is best. Yesterday, uh, you may have read it as well, I, I read of a tragedy that just occurred in the last few hours, 48 hours or so, of two climbers who reached the summit of Mount Everest and died on the way back down, apparently from altitude sickness. There are places on this planet it's just not wise to go to. There are places we're not intended to live. The bottom of the ocean, does God intend for us to live at the bottom of the ocean or at the top of the highest peak where you can't breathe, where it's cold? I feel for those, those folks and their families, tragic. But it does show us that God's wisdom is bigger than ours. Where do we go when our needs and desires are overwhelming? Romans 16, 27, we'll get here eventually. The only wise God through Jesus Christ. That's where we go. The only wise God through Jesus Christ. God knows what's best and wise and how to enact that in his universe and in your life. Do you understand? Will you please believe that God does what is wise and best, which is not always what we want? Then he says both wisdom and knowledge. He puts them both together. The knowledge of God. What does God know? How much does God know? Take your Bibles and turn over to Psalm 139 for a moment. In Psalm 139, we find the, the, the greatest concentration of data about God's knowledge, how much God knows. We call that God's omniscience. He knows everything. But it's paired with God's omnipresence, which means he's everywhere. If he's everywhere, he knows everything. And if he knows everywhere, everything, he must be everywhere. Nothing is outside his gaze. But let's go through this just from Paul's perspective, looking back at, at David's words. 
Psalm 139, for the choir director, a psalm of David. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. This is, this is quite a turn. The infinite God who is infinitely known by no one but himself and infinitely, know, infinitely knows all, that God, David says, you've searched to know me. Here's how specific. You know, when I sit down and when I rise up, you see everything I do. You understand my thought from afar. You know everything I think. You scrutinize my, my path, my living, and my lying down. You are intimately acquainted with how many of my ways? All my ways. You know, the, the greatest antidote for any sin is a good, good solid dose of God's omniscience and God's omnipresence. A.W. Tozer says, In the moment of sin, every man is a practical atheist. He may say he believes in God, but he's acting like God doesn't exist. This is incredible. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, Lord, you know it all. You know what I'm about to say. You've enclosed me behind and before. You've laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Do you hear David saying, oh, it's too high. I cannot attain to it. So if God knows all that, maybe I can escape him. And he asks, verse 7, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, don't think hell, think of the abode of the dead. If I die, behold, you're there too. If I take the wings of the dawn, the horizon, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, your right hand will lay hold of me, you will find me there. Just on the Discovery Channel, uh, a few uh, days ago, I was watching this... this, uh, Incredible, unbelievably God-glorifying, even though they didn't know it, um, documentary of these, these fish that live on the bottom of the Mariana Trench in the deepest part of the sea that no one will ever see except God, who have no light, but God sees. That's the kind of insight and vision our God has. He sees everything we do, everything we say, every place we go, every thought we think. And every time we sin, we act like that's not true. Even darkness is not dark to you. Night, bright as day. Darkness and light, the same thing to you. For you formed, verse 13, my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb I will give you thanks, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it well. My frame, my body was not hidden from you. When I was made in secret, my mother's womb, skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth, your eyes have seen my unformed substance. This is a divine sonogram. There were no sonograms during this day. I remember Kim and I went to see our firstborn. We didn't know if it was Luke or Anna at the time. We would see our firstborn. And I was so excited, we're going to see our baby. And they gave me a picture of our baby. I've got that picture of our baby. Luke, I'm sorry to tell you, you looked like a lima bean. (laughs) Technology, they have 3D things you can see. God sees it all. He sees everything. 
How precious are your thoughts to me? Actually, go back to verse 16. You've seen my unformed substance. In your book were written all the days that were ordained for me when there was not yet one of them. Here's a humbling thought. God knows the day you're going to die. It's recorded. He knows that day. He knows how you're going to die. You can't avoid it. I don't care how many gluten-free cookies and how many health clubs you join, you're not going to make that day any different. He knows that day. He wrote that book. Get this. Before you were born, he wrote your, the day of your death. And Jesus prays for that day in John 17 and says, oh, where I'm going to be with you, I want them to be with me. For a Christian, that's not a bad day. He knows every day. So someone was asking me, I'm going to uh, France this summer. They said, well, are you, are, you, are you afraid to go to Paris? And I kind of thought about it. I thought, well, I mean, there's, there's a lot going on over there. Should I? You know what the reality is? If I were to jump on a plane and something were to happen to that plane, that instant where I closed my eyes the last time would have happened at that instant no matter where. Do we understand how in control God is and do we also understand how fragile life is? Jonathan Edwards says, God has already drawn the bow and let the arrow free and the arrow is in the air that's going to take our lives. It's already set in motion. You know it all, God. He climaxes this, this text by saying, "Then, because of that, search me, O God. Know my heart. Know my anxious thought." Change me. God has absolute, infinite knowledge. And he's wise about that knowledge. Secondly, he has unquestionable judgment. He has unquestionable judgment. Look in the middle of verse 33. How unsearchable are his judgments. Anexaronatos, big word. Anexaronatos, it's, it's an important Greek word. I don't use a lot of Greek with you. This one's important. Here's what it means. Impossible to fully understand. How impossible to fully understand are his judgments. What judgments have we been talking about for three, three chapters? Election, predestination, God, Israel, Gentiles. Goes back to the argument of Romans 9. He chose Jacob over Esau before they were born. Get this. The text says, before they had done anything right or wrong, he chose them. Completely on his prerogative. He chose Abraham or Israel over any other person or any other nation. He chose to include Gentiles in the salvation he promised the Jews. You can't know all of God's judgments. You just can't figure it out. So anytime that you come up, we'll come back to this in our next, in our next point. Anytime you come up against something that you know is true, the Bible says it's true, but it's hard to understand, know that that's okay. That's okay because of this important Greek word, anoxironitas, impossible to fully understand. Paul said that. Does that give you a little encouragement? Paul said, it's impossible to fully get it. 
Even though I just told you that, it can't be fully known. He says that. It's incredible. So in considering the sovereignty of God and salvation, the question is not whether or not we understand what the Bible says. The question is whether or not we agree with what the Bible says. And what I found is that not, it doesn't take a lot to understand what, what the Bible's saying, but most people just don't like it. And so because they don't like it, they say it can't be true. Third, his judgment is unsearchable, not able to fully understand. Third, he has inscrutable plans. Inscrutable means you can't find the boundaries of. Look at the end of verse 33. And unfathomable are his ways. Remember those sounding ropes you put over the side of the boat? Tie them all together. Get another rope. Get a longer rope. Borrow the ropes from all the boats around you. Get all the ropes in all the world. Tie them together and keep feeding the ocean. And you're never going to find the bottom. You will never find the bottom. How unfathomable, unable to find the bottom are his ways. How he acts, what he does. Because he is, this is an important word, holy other than us. Not H-O-L-Y, W-H-O-L-L-Y. Entirely holy and different, wholly different than we are. We know this in Isaiah, in Isaiah 5, excuse me, 55, Isaiah tells the people, verse 6, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Now, that's a trib- trembling passage. That, that can make you shudder. Seek the Lord, listen, while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. What's the inference? What's the implication? There will be a time when he's not found, and there will be a time when he's not near. Seek him while he's findable and near. God's invitation to salvation does not extend into eternity. Seek him while you have life and breath. And let me just beg you, if you don't know Jesus Christ, today is the day to run to him. You don't know when your book ends in his divine writing. You don't know when your last day is or how it will come. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Now listen to what Isaiah says. Let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. He will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. In that context, listen to what he says. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. I think we need to be careful in what we assume about God. We need to be careful when we think that we know God's ways. Ways just means the way he acts. Can I encourage you to be careful of these phrases? I think God is trying to teach me a lesson. God has never attempted anything he hasn't done. So if you don't know the lesson, God's not up there going, well, let's try it again. God doesn't try anything he doesn't accomplish. Be careful saying, well, I think God may be trying to teach me a lesson. 
bless his heart, give him another shot at it. Or maybe this, God is trying to show me something. Like God is up there going, oh, I hope they see it. God is trying to tell me something. Do you think God has a speech impediment? Be careful thinking you know what God is doing. You may see shades and shadows of what God's doing, but you have no confidence that you have the end judgment. You can say, it seems like God is, and I think God might be, but be careful with the I know what God is doing. I know how God is trying. That's on a macro level and on a micro level. That's in your own life. That's in the politics of this world. Our focus should not be on figuring out what God is doing as much as it is sorting out what we are doing in response to him. That's the difference. I love what John Calvin says. Listen to this. If anyone sets out to know more than God has revealed, he shall be overwhelmed by the infinite brightness of his inaccessible light. In other words, forget it. I love David's prayer. He came to the end and just, he just runs out of language like Paul does when he's dedicating the temple. He's so overwhelmed with the offering that was given to the temple that his son will get to build. First Chronicles 29.10, David blessed the Lord in the sight of the assembly and said, Blessed are you, O Lord, our, the God of Israel, our Father forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is, and just listen to him. Listen to him struggle. Yours is the greatness and the power, and the glory, and the victory, and the majesty, and eat everything that's in the heavens and on the earth. Yours is, is, is the dominion, O Lord. You exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honors come from you. You rule over all. In your hand is the power and might. And it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. He just says, I don't know what I got in my vocabulary, but all the good stuff is God even better. He was overwhelmed. And we come to church and say, it was a good song. What's for lunch? We have a quiet time. We say, well, I got to get to work. I don't know if my Pop-Tart's ready. Let's go back to the beginning. Have you ever been overwhelmed by the greatness of God? Have you ever had an oh moment where you just don't know what to say. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unfathomable are his ways. And that's just the first three of nine points he has in this passage. 